Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, it's Asha. Just a warning that this episode contains references to the mosque attacks of March 15, 2019. Some of the material could be disturbing to some people. This can be hard stuff. If you need to talk to a trained counsellor, just ring 1737. I lost the most precious person in my life, and I lost it in an act of hate. You know, he was a very loving man. We have lost our imam, our leader, our entertainer, our very, very handy man, our favourite chef. It's now been 10 months since our widows lost their husbands. In Islam, the man is in charge of providing for the house, the food, the clothes, in charge of the bills. You can do everything what boys can do. And I'm going to make her very, very strong. He cooks, I clean the dishes. If I cook, he automatically cleans the dishes. He puts the clothes in the laundry, I'll hang it up to dry. He takes them down, I'll fold it up. You know, so we are a tag team. A woman is her own person. You are what you make yourself. A woman's money is a woman's money. The men's money is the woman and the family's money. Assalamu alaikum. This is Widows of Shuhada, where we walk alongside four women in the months following the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks. Attacks which claim the lives of their husbands, their loves, their protectors. They were four of 51 killed that day. In this fifth episode, we're going to focus on some of the gender-based issues the widows are facing. So, you might be a little surprised by what you hear as we explore what being a Muslim woman means to our widows. And to me, Asha Abdi, your guide as we walk with the widows of Shuhada. In Islam, a husband and wife have specific roles in the family that go back centuries. The woman, she's the giver of life and the nurturer. The man is usually the head of the family. When a husband dies, like so many did on March 15th, a male relative often steps in to provide guidance and support. Her father, her brother, her uncle, her grandfather or her adult son have to step up and take over that role of looking after her. So in Islam, that role is known as a wali. In other words, he is a protector. Our four widows of Shuhada, Sanjida Jamaniha, Muhabali Jama. Farah Talal and Hamima Tuyan are now adjusting to the changing dynamics of their families in the wake of New Zealand's most deadly terror attack. The second day, my brother came. By that time, my brother had come to join me from Melbourne. Hamima followed the most traditional route. Her brother came to stand by her, to be her willy. Having the father, having that support, 
and a brother is also very important. For now, Farah has returned to her father in Jordan. I am just waiting for my mother to come. Once mother comes, then I will see how to reorganize my whole financial structure. My brother is very young, so I can't depend upon him. Neha's father has worked in Qatar for many years, away from his family in Bangladesh. She's now relying on her mother to guide her and her baby's future. And Mahupa's situation is different again. She has two brothers, but neither can take up that duty. They're bigger. But, uh, Both my brothers are grown men now. They are very handsome and strong and tall. However, their brains are not functioning like everyone else's. It's late December. While most Kiwis are celebrating the holidays, Muslims are just enjoying a break from work and school. We don't celebrate Christmas. Our religious holidays of Ramadan and Eid took place earlier in the year. For the Kiwi holidays, we just use that time to get together with family and friends. The weather is warm, the sun is shining in Christchurch. It's a couple of days after Christmas. We are at Niha's new house. That's right, a new house. Now that she's got a permanent residence visa for both herself and baby Nord, Niha found a great place for them to live. She got a lot of help from her Ministry of Social Development caseworker and she used victim support money for her first bond on the rental. Each widow received a cash payout from the $10 million donated from people all over the world immediately after their tax. This generosity is part of the reason that Niha and Nord are now in their own home. In previous episodes, we heard how Niha arrived in New Zealand as a pregnant widow a few weeks after her husband died. For several months, she lived with Asma Azad, a woman she met through the Al-Nur Mosque community, who pretty much adopted Niha into her own family of five. But now that Niha knows she and Nord can stay in New Zealand, they've moved into a cute little two-bedroom, semi-detached house on a fairly busy road in Christchurch. It has a tidy kitchen and a small adjoining lounge with beige carpet and an old fireplace that was probably blocked up after the earthquakes. There's some basic second-hand furniture, but there isn't much up on the walls yet. There's a nice little sun-soaked garden too. Niha smiles broadly as she lets us in. We could tell she's very pleased with her sweet new home. <laughs> but the excitement of showing us her new house quickly gave way to tears. It hadn't been a good day for Niha. Not good. Because yesterday, my second anniversary, two years. Two years. It's exactly two years since Niha and Omar Farooq were married in Bangladesh. Niha continues in Urdu. Yesterday I was, I just kind of happened to have a look at my wedding videos. Then I thought, okay, let me play. I just couldn't stand it when I saw the video, I couldn't stand it. A couple of months ago, 
Neha showed us a few of her wedding photos and wow, I kind of know why it might be almost unbearable for her to revisit what looked like an incredible day. In the photo, Neha is made up from head to toe in beautiful ornaments, a magnificent headpiece, henna up and down her arms, gold jewellery. She looks simply stunning. And Omar, her husband, looks so happy and proud. Back then, on that magical day in 2018, Neha and Omar had their entire lives to look forward to. So much hope and expectation. Two big families coming together to unite and bless this new couple. Neha's life is very different now. She's alone, a widow, in a foreign country. But she's young, only 21, and she still has a lot to look forward to. <laughs> like bringing up baby Nord, who's now four months old. Mama, mama, mama. She's growing up really fast. She has dark hair, big brown eyes, and smiles heaps. She's even sounding like an older baby now. <laughs> Cute. And Niha has even more news. After a long wait for their passports to be processed, Niha's mother and 13-year-old brother are finally arriving from Bangladesh. They'll be here the very next day. <laughs> Having butterflies in my stomach. Jumping. I'm jumping. We can't wait to meet Neha's family. Mahobbo, our Somali widow, married much later in life than Neha did. She was already living in New Zealand and in her early 40s when she married Sheikh Mose, one of the 51 shuhada. Martyrs of March 15th. Our religion does not say how old you need to be when you get married. For example, Katija was 40 years old when she married the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Mahoppa brings up Khadija, the first wife of our Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. They were married around the year 585 AD. Khadija is a woman born out of nobility. She was a widow, twice widowed. Her husband were both killed in the war during those times. This is Jemaya Jones. By now, you'll already know that she's our religious advisor for this podcast, helping explain things like Khadija's role in our faith. She was a businesswoman. She was a mother. She was very well respected in her community because of her nobility. And there were so many men who wanted to have her hand in marriage, but she refused. But when she heard about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, through the people who work with her, and in fact, he started working for her too at one stage, and she heard from those who worked with him about his good character, his trustworthiness, his honesty, she was attracted to him because of his good character. So what she did was, she asked for his hand 
in marriage. He was 25 years old and she was 40 years old. Mahupa kind of relates to Khadija because she also chose to marry later in life. And there's quite an age gap between her and Sheikh Musa. Nowadays, Somalis and some Muslims say, how can you marry someone who is older than you? But Islamically, this is what Khadija did. So, who's better than the Prophet? If two people love each other, they should be married. This is what I did. I got married when it was my time to be married. The love story of Lady Khadija and Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is one of the many stories we learned growing up as Muslims. They had six children together, and even though it was common for Muslim men to have more than one wife at the time, Muhammad, peace be upon him, didn't take another wife until after Khadija had died. She died at 65. He had never stopped loving her. I was really young when I learned about Lady Khadija, probably at Quran lessons, so like, even before I started primary school, maybe? When I first heard about her, I didn't think that she was some superheroine or anything. I just thought, like, yeah, women can be strong and powerful and can do anything they want. She was an embodiment of strength, integrity, honour, compassion. She used her wealth to help the poor. During that time when the Muslims were persecuted, she used to use her money to pay off people who were slaves so that they can get their freedom. And Muslim woman wants to be like her, so she is Mm a role model for most of us. And the fact that she married a younger person and the fact that she actually asked for his hand in marriage, that shows that as a Muslim woman, we can do that too. Yeah. (laughs) I think for me, what she represents is like empowerment and independence and strength and I feel like those are qualities that aren't necessarily associated with women especially Muslim women and I feel like when when you see why we don't see her because she was born like a thousand years Mm -hmm. ago but when you hear of those stories and women doing that you see it as kind of precedence so you can do it because she did it because when I was because I did uni for a while before I figured journalism was an option for me and that was because I didn't see people that looked like me doing it so I didn't have that precedence so to have her be a successful businesswoman Mm. in her own right and all of that Mm. I know I can do it because she did it so who's going to stop me? If you look at her life you want to change and do what she could do Yeah You know, in Islam, the standards for Muslim women is not in relation to the standard of the Muslim man or that we have to catch up to them. This is Hamima. Her husband, Zechariah Tuyan, was shot in the attacks. He became the 51st victim seven weeks later. They came to New Zealand in 2013. Hamima now lives in Singapore with her two young sons. We have our own standards Um, In Islam, you know, a Muslim woman and a Muslim man, we are all equal in terms of the opportunity to be the best that we can be as Muslims. But Islam does have specific roles for women and men within the family. In Islam, the family is the most important social unit in society. The happiness of the members of the family depends on the happiness of the whole family. So technically... Men and women have different roles and responsibilities to play. The man is usually the head of the family and is responsible for the wife and children. On the other hand, 
the wife, the woman, is the most important person in the family because she's the giver of life and the nurturer. Also, he has to ensure that the family are physically safe and that nobody would hurt them physically. So that's the other thing. So he's like the warrior of the family. <laughs> Just to add to that, there's a verse in the Quran which says, They, being the woman, are a garment for you, the men, and you are a garment for them. This verse is so powerful because it reflects the close connection and relationship just like our clothes. Our clothes are so close to our bodies and we need them to protect ourselves from the heat and the cold and also to cover whatever imperfections we have and to give each other tranquility and beauty. Yeah, I love that idea. In addition, our Prophet Muhammad, he said, the most complete person in faith are those who have the best manners, or in Arabic, ahlak. And the best of the men are those who are good to their wives. I think Atta and I had a very special relationship. Fada has been in Jordan with her family for the past two months. Her mother had flown to New Zealand immediately after the attacks. And eight months later, when it was time to return to Jordan, Farah decided to go with her. She just needed to be amongst her family and childhood friends again. Going to Jordan was one of the best decisions I've made. I'm very happy and I feel really blessed. It has been an amazing journey so far. I am loving it. And it's good to be surrounded with friends and family and receiving the unconditional love and attention and support childhood best friends and cousins and alhamdulillah it was actually planned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Farah's doing pretty well these days. She thinks it was a good decision for her mentally just to absorb and take in the reality of living without her beloved husband, Atta Eliyan. We try to have a mutual agreement on a lot of things and I think that what made our, our relationship very special is that we were never competing against each other. We were trying to complete each other and in order to do that and if you achieve that you'll achieve a happy family. So I was never trying to compete with him or compete against him if you may say. Rather we found our roles completing each other. My role as a mother, his role as a father and again my role as a woman and his role as a man. Caring for children, providing for their health, educating them are shit duties of both the parents. But being the father in the family, he has a greater responsibility for this matter. The father or the husband, he has to kind of oversee the whole religious training of the family members and move them towards improving themselves as a person. So a man is expected to act as a sort of a overseer, protector, to ensure that the family members do not go towards corruption and doing bad things. So that is the duty of husbands and fathers. For example, Sheikh Musa often read the Qur'an to Muhubba. Because she didn't study Arabic or go to school when she was young, Sheikh Musa would also explain what the verses meant. Before I didn't understand anything, I would ask him. Now I don't have anyone to ask. 
God bless him. The other specific responsibility of a husband is that he have to provide and manage the expenses of the family. So he is the one who is the breadwinner. Here's Farah. In Islam, the man is in charge of providing for the house. So even if both of us are working, he is the one in charge of providing the food, the clothes, in charge of the bills. The beauty of Islam is that when I do it, when I contribute financially to the family, I did it although I'm not expected to do it. I do it because it's an option for me. It's an it's a sadaqah. You know, it's actually an act of charity, an act of kindness um, towards my husband to enlighten his burden um, and then to bring the family to, you know, to some kind of um, comfort, right? A woman's money is a woman's money. The man's money is the woman and the family's money. So what happens with Hamima and the other widows when, like their husbands, are no longer there to be their protectors, their breadwinners, their leaders? Technically in Islam, that role is known as a wali. In other words, he is a protector. My brother Hafidi and my sister-in-law Suraya, they dropped everything. Their jobs, incomes, their children, their comfortable lives to come and help, support, comfort my sons and I. And for weeks, they witnessed and they went through with me, dealing with the police, crowds of local and international visitors, government agents, embassy officials, media, doctors, nurses, volunteers, messages from friends and families to reply to, phone calls to make. All of that on top of having my young active boys and parents-in-law to attend to as well. They had no chance to rest, not even a chance to grieve. My brother did this because he is the closest distance-wise and, and relationship-wise to me. So he came from Melbourne um, over to Christchurch. They did this not just out of responsibility, being my guardians, but they also did this out of humanity, out of love for their sibling. But the option of having a family member, having the father, having that support, and a brother is also very important because sometimes it's, it makes things a lot easier. For example, if you needed a plumber to come to your house and, and fix something, and if you have a brother, you could just call him and like, can you please just make sure that everything's going to go all right and, and you could leave, for example, or he could just be there for support. It's simple things that you can't put into words sometimes. So in Islam, men and women that are not closely related or married aren't supposed to touch each other or spend time alone together. It's about protecting virtue. Farah is talking about if a plumber, who is likely to be an unrelated man, is coming over. Then a woman might find herself alone with someone that it's inappropriate for her to be alone with, even if it's just to fix the sink. A male relative, like her brother, could help out in the situation and be there when the plumber arrives. Admittedly, these practices come from an era when men and women had a lot less to do with each other, and some Muslims don't follow these customs as closely as others. Say I'm getting an Uber to come and find out that the driver is a man. I'm not going to worry too much about that because it could take me ages to wait to find a female driver. For me, it's okay to be a bit flexible, but other Muslim women might feel uncomfortable doing this. It's about choice, how you were raised, 
and your culture too. Back to our widows, men, relationships and all that. Hamima and Zachariah had a pretty modern marriage. There was one period of time when they first arrived in New Zealand when Zachariah looked after their young sons while Hamima started her PhD studies. My husband and I, we, we are a tech team and we work so well together. Oh yeah, I should warn you, Hamima laughs at herself that even though he's passed away, she can't help but talk about Zachariah in the present tense. There's never been like a clear-cut role in terms of the worldly aspects of it, right? So he cooks, I clean the dishes. If I cook, he automatically cleans the dishes. He puts the clothes in the laundry, I'll hang it up to dry. He takes them down, I'll fold it up. You know, so we are a tag team. And I know of many families like that. There is no like, oh, you're the women of the house, so you do the housework. Nope, not in my family, not in my friends' families, not in my relatives' families. Um, but when it comes to the religious side of things, so we recognize that they are still the the leader in the sense that they are responsible for our upbringing, they are responsible for our financial maintenance, they are responsible for our religious education and our religiousness or spirituality, um, our um, understanding of the faith, right? They lead the prayers and so on and so forth. So yes, in that sense, um, so now without him, I take over right or if I have brothers or uncles who are able to or he was living with me then they would be the ones to take over but I don't have those so I take over as the leader of the uh, of the children now and ensure that they as a mother I'm also it's my also my my duty to then bring them up in terms of their spirituality spirituality as well I think that one of the misconceptions about Muslim women is that the idea of a protector or welly in the family means that women don't have a lot of control over themselves or that they need to ask their male relatives permission before doing anything. Maybe non-Muslims see that as a way of saying that Muslim women are weak and need protecting. But we believe men and women are equal in Allah's eyes and that we have different but complementary roles. Like Farah says, We found our roles completing each other. My role as a mother, his role as a father. And again, my role as a woman and his role as a man. And Hamima is a great example of a Muslim woman who honours these traditions while also just getting on with her duties as a parent, both a mother's duties and a father's duties. Yeah, because we can't fly. They can fly. Earlier in the series, Niha said that she was really concerned about what she was going to tell her daughter. When she grows up, she'll ask me, where's my father? How am I going to answer that question? I don't know. She may not have figured that out yet, but now in December, she seems more confident about her baby's future. I'm going to tell her that, yeah, you don't have a father. That's what she's going to grow up with, that feeling. But at the same time, there are two ways for her now. Either she will be really, really scared that or worried that, okay, I don't have my father, 
and I just have my mother and we both are ladies and I'm not sure how we are going to grow, and grow up and all, how we are going to do, manage our life. But at the same time, if she feels that, oh, okay, so what if my father is not there? I am there, I can do it. Neha knows that Noor has a tough road ahead. So she can be very weak, she can be very strong. But Neha will do her best to make Noor strong. Another misconception about Muslim women involves the hijab. Like, what's the problem with wearing a headscarf? Everyone thinks this is another sign of our oppression. But to us, we cover our head and neck out of respect for our creator and ourselves. And we do this because we choose to, not because men make us do this. Here's Hamima. When my mom went for Hajj, that's the religious pilgrimage to Mecca. She came back, she decided to put it on, and she was already about 50-something at that time. Me, I wore it when I was 26. When I was studying in Australia, I wasn't wearing it. I had people asking me lots of questions, and then they looked at me, and then they, oh, you're a moderate um, Muslim. You're a, you know, there was all these things about moderate versus fundamental, and I was never comfortable with those kind of titles given to me. And I felt like, oh, I haven't been representing my religion properly then. Then there was a tipping point. I was walking, um, waiting for to cross the road, and there was this old um, man, and there was this woman, lady in front of me, and she was wearing something very tight. Um, and then this man was just leering at her, looking at her up and down, and then the eyes stopped at me nowhere. And I thought, ooh, that's not what I want men to do to me, whether I'm aware or not. Um, I know that they will do this, and that's not what I want men to do to me. So I decided to wear the hijab. At the end of the day, hijab is a choice, a woman's choice. Right, Jumaya? As far as the hijab is concerned, there is a verse in the Quran that commands us Muslim women to cover ourselves and be modest. Basically, a hijab is not a piece of cloth on your head. A hijab means to dress modestly and therefore the only parts of the body that should be seen is your face and your wrist your hands and your and up to your wrist and uh, the clothes you wear should not be tight and transparent so that is what veil or hijab means right from there each culture will wear you know the dupatta for example for mm. the indians they wear a big veil and the colors and uh, the pattern of the clothes does not matter. And yeah, it's a mix of culture, religion, and fashion, essentially. And the other thing is also, because it's a commandment, and each one of us is accountable to our creator because he commanded us to wear, to veil ourselves and protect ourselves. So if we decided not to cover ourselves, it is our choice because it is between the person and her creator. So nobody else could sort of enforce her to do something she doesn't want because it is accountability between her and her creator. There definitely is a variety of ways that Muslim women see this and a lot of that depends on the culture they come from. When Hamima was visiting Christchurch recently from Singapore, we got to talking about hijab too, how some cultures force women to wear it while others force women to take it off. 
on the one hand, we have societies that tell Muslim women to take off or not be so visible. We're talking about women who willingly put on the hijab. Their, their parents didn't make them do it. To have those societies tell Muslim women that you should not don the hijab if you want to be in public, whether it's education, higher education, or to go to um, public spaces, um, I don't see that as any different from the... There are some families where there are Muslim men who actually force it on their women to wear it, right? But in general, that is not the, the rule, or that's not what Muslims are expected to do to their women, to force them to wear the hijab. It's or, the same thing, but from different sides of the spectrum. You have people saying, put it on, like forcing people to wear it, and then you have non-Muslims who are trying to force us not to wear it, mm. but they don't realise that they're one and the same, just... Different, different sides of the, yeah, mm. the mm. spectrum. Or people, like I said, that have a problem with hyper-visibility of Muslim mm. because they have not, I don't know where they have been all this time, they have not read that we Muslims, are, we Muslim women, are starting to get to know our religion um, mm. and appreciate our religion a bit um, much more. And we have seen that we can be successful, we can do anything we want, even with the hijab on our heads. Mm. And that's not an indication of what's inside. It's just us wanting to manifest our faithfulness to our religion on the outside. I was like nine months old when my family migrated here. So I grew up in New Zealand. To me, it's interesting that this simple Islamic custom can make so many problems for us. I had a co-worker who was prejudiced. I didn't know if she was Maori or Samoans or what. But because I wore my hijab, she got really mad. This happens more than you might think. Muslim women in New Zealand are frequently singled out and face negative comments about their hijab, women like Mahubbo. She was so mad that she said, who is this African? My boss was called and they told her to leave. It's great having a boss that's good person. They made her apologize and she said sorry and that she was wrong. After that, we became the closest of our co-workers. The women who did that to me, we became friends. I guess what we're trying to say here is that, yeah, there are some definite gender-based traditions within our religion, but the women in the series, and we by no means speak for all Muslim women, but the widows and me and Jumaya, we all choose to live in respect of Allah and wear hijab, even if that makes us targets to people like the gunmen of March 15th. At this stage in December, Mohubba's doing a little better. After the attacks, she moved in with her mother and two brothers, so she wouldn't be alone in the house that she had shared with her husband. But with the head injury from the refugee camp in East Africa and the trauma she experienced from being at the mosque that day, Noise became a big problem for her. Sudden bangs and claps frighten her. Even the sound of her car engine scares her. I used to drive my car everywhere. I can't drive now. If I hear a slight bang, I get scared. Mahupa's still not driving. 
However, she found out last month that Housing New Zealand has found a house large enough for her mother, her brothers and herself. I am so happy that I'm going to have my own room that is quiet and private. All my belongings have been in a bag since my husband died. I've noticed some physical changes in Muhubba too. Her skin is a bit smoother and brighter. She seems to have a little more life inside of her, as if hope is starting to return. And Farah is back at her family home in Jordan. I'm not sure if you can hear that in the background, but this is the call for prayer, Iqamat al-Salah. We live really close to, the, to a mosque. <laughs> and it's actually one of the things I really miss the most as well about coming to Jordan, the sound of the Adhan. coming to Jordan was also going to trigger some things and some places and some meals and some people and I was I was right like I was once told that grief comes in waves and you never know when it's going to strike you it suddenly comes and then suddenly goes and it's so true because one day you're sitting having a meal and then the other you're just in tears choking <laughs> for me it's been two years now since I've come to Jordan the last time I came here was when Aya was only six months and now she's two years and a half. I wasn't very sure that I wanted to come because I didn't want to face it. I didn't want to live everything again, all over again. And I, to be honest, I wasn't sure how it was going to be. My reactions, my friends' reactions, and the family, everyone. But Alhamdulillah, I think Going to Jordan was one of the best decisions I've made. I'm very happy and I feel really blessed. It has been an amazing journey so far. I am loving it. And it's good to be surrounded with friends and family and receiving the unconditional love and attention and support. Like Niha and Hamima with their children, Farah tries to maintain a focus on her daughter in the midst of her grief. I'm going to try my best to raise a very happy child and make her as proud of both parents, inshallah, and proud of herself, proud of her identity, proud of being a Muslim and a Muslim born in New Zealand, inshallah. What do you want? Ice cream. Ice cream? Do you like ice cream? Yeah. Is it yummy? Yeah. Nine months after the March attacks, which ended, in effect, their marriages, the widow's responsibilities have changed, even as they hold on to the gender-based beliefs of Islam. Farah doesn't have plans yet to come back to New Zealand from Jordan. She's not committing either way at this stage. She's just happy to be where she is, at the moment. My plan is, obviously, I want to get a job and, and try to provide for Aya and, and try to make it happen, inshallah. It might be easier, less painful, to renew her old life in Jordan with her own family, or she might decide to return to Christchurch, where her husband's family is well-established and where she already has a job. She also has a lot of friends here and a tight-knit community that understands what she's going through because 
we lived through it too. In our own ways, everyone in the Muslim community here in Christchurch are all recovering from the impact that March 15th had on our lives. For Mahopo, moving to a quieter and bigger home with her family is a big part of coming to terms with what she saw at Al Nur Mosque on March 15th. I was there in the mosque and I saw lots of people, you know, top of each other. And that is the hardest bit for me, and I can't talk about it. For Hamima, visiting Christchurch from Singapore earlier this month was healing. I surprised myself. I was, you know, very anxious and very nervous about coming back. But um, I've, I've been very surprised, you know, as to how easily I just settled back in. It's coming back home. But her busy day-to-day -day life, working full-time and raising two active boys alone, is really challenging. How much is Let's see if we can find our favourite Niha's life in New Zealand is falling into place. She and Nord now have visas to stay here for as long as she wants. She can at last be supported by her own family, her mum and younger brother, in a country that has had some dark moments of loneliness and uncertainty. As her English continues to improve... But now I'm happy, really, yeah. really happy. And this is Farouk's last wish. She now has her sights set on finding a job to support herself and raise Noor in ways she never would have imagined in her native Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, we can think that, okay, generally they say she's a girl, she's a kind of weaker sex, and uh, she may not be able to do everything what generally a boy can do. But I am going to teach her that so what if you're a girl, you can do everything what boys can do. And I'm going to make her very, very strong. I want to teach her very strong. This is Asha Abdi, and you've been listening to the fifth episode of Widows of Shuhada. Next time, we take a deep dive into Mahubba's incredible journey from war-torn Somalia to a refugee camp in Kenya to, at last, New Zealand away from war perhaps, but into another kind of violence that was March 15th, 2019. This series was produced by Community Access Radio Plains FM for RNZ, made possible by the RNZ New Zealand Oni Innovation Fund. The burkini, I don't know why they call it the burkini, but that's supposed to be a bikini plus burka, where you have a more covered up body suit. Right? I'm not sure why they don't call it just a full swimming suit because people have been wearing swimming suit for the since I can remember bikini growing up. Bikini is so corny, I but hate saying it. But they've got to call it a burkini on the beach, at the beach. But it's okay if you're not wearing anything or if you're just wearing thin bikinis um, that barely cover your beep, yeah. beep. That's okay, though, because the men said that's okay. But for Muslim women dressing up in a diving suit or something that looks like mm. a diving suit, that's not okay. You've got to go home and take it off. Mm. You will be dragged off the beach. To our four inspiring widows, Farah, Neha, Mohobo and Hamima, you just keep opening up to us, month after month, and we hope that the world is full of more compassion and empathy because of what you've shared. Lana Hart wrote and produced the series with support from Nikki Reese, Jumaya Jones, Asma Azar, and me, Asha Abdi. 
A special thanks to RNZ's Liz Garten, who put her head and her heart into the series, as did Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin at RNZ. And thanks to RNZ Senior Commissioner, Kay Elmers, Bryony Lastavika, Alex Hama, Kali Mohammed, Alka Srivanasan, and the wonderful team at Plains FM. We couldn't have done it without you. Janet Gill overcame so many challenges in this project to deliver heartfelt photos. Check them out on the RNZ website. The music is from the Egyptian oud player Hasim Shaheen. You can find the Widows of Shohada podcast on rnz.co.nz, plainsfm.org.nz, or any podcatcher, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Google Podcasts. And to the 51 who were lost that day, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. We came from Allah, and to Allah we shall return.